Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Years ago, it was the great Dorothy Parker who said that the movie business was the only business in the world where the assets go home at night. Well, that may have had a ring of truth then, but today in a world where intellectual property and human capital is what makes our economy tick, it seems that all the assets go home at night. And what they do, what they think about, what they conceive of when they're home opens a minefield of issues that are legal, cultural, and human. Add to these questions the global world where work is 24-7, where nomadic work patterns are the subject of New York Times magazine cover stories, and where a single idea can be worth billions and can in fact change the world, and the consequences of these questions become enormous. My guest, distinguished law professor Orly Lobel, tells a story of the toy business that is both compelling in its own right and emblematic of the future of law and work. In her new book, You Don't Own Me, Orly Lobel is an award-winning author of Talent Wants to Be Free. She's also the Don Wexstein Professor of Law at the University of San Diego. She holds doctorate in law degrees from Harvard. And it is my pleasure to welcome Orly Lobel here to talk about You Don't Own Me, how Mattel and MGA Entertainment exposed Barbie's darker side. Orly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about who Carter Bryant is, because he's, at, at least in the first part of this story, he is the center of the story. He's what makes this story uh, start going. That's right. Carter is the unlikely hero of the story, or as you say, the beginning of the story, because part of the story is how the creative, the inventor, the person who's sort of down in the trenches working for Mattel and then coming up with an idea for a completely different doll line is then really a pawn between the two companies who are competing over ideas and inventions and his his human capital, but he really gets sort of erased. Uh, and, and, and for him, I think a lot of the readers have pointed out that he just seems like a very tragic character and it's sort of the tragic story of the disappearance of the the single solo inventor, really, which is, I think, emblematic of our times. Right. I mean, it's emblematic of the times, and yet, as kind of the, you know, in, in traditional storytelling sense, he's kind of the MacGuffin of the story, but it's really not about Carter Bryant, but he symbolizes what this story is about, and that's who owns a certain degree of intellectual capital, particularly when people are supposedly off the clock from whatever it is that they're doing or whoever it is they're working for. Exactly. So in every industry and in really every position uh, in today's job market, companies are asking employees to sign uh, what you might call uh, pre-innovation assignment agreements, uh, and there are many different clauses, and I've studied these clauses in my scholarly research, and I've written many law review articles about it, and I've also written a previous book about the expansion of this contractual, these contractual controls over employees' minds and ideas and ability to move from one employer to another. Um, my previous book is called Talent Wants to Be Free, and um, I was very fortunate in 2016 to be invited to the White House to speak about the book and these issues because it's really become a, a big concern that employees are signing very broad clauses that say basically that everything that you do 
during the term of employment, um, whether patentable or non-patentable, whether copyrightable or non-copyrightable, whether, as you say, you know, during work hours or off the job, belongs to the employer. And they also oftentimes say um, also a year after you leave us, every patent that you want to file is basically uh, should be owned by the previous employer. Um, you cannot compete with the the previous employer for about three years. There are you know, a lot of variations in the language, but the broadening has been a consistent pattern in all of these industries. Of course, with some of this, with, with ideas, with intellectual property, it's very hard, as you point out in, in this particular story, it's very hard to prove this. If somebody has an idea, and, and I think one of the lawyers makes reference to this in, in one of the trials, if you have an idea and put it in a drawer and not take it out for five years, who owns that idea? And is it at the time you came up with it or at the time you're doing something with it? Yeah, so a lot of the juicy part that in, in You Don't Own Me in the book that I uh, described from the two trials that went on for over a decade here in Southern California about um, how was it that suddenly after years of dominance in the toy market uh, that Mattel had with uh, owning Barbie, how was it that suddenly there was a, an idea for a new kind of doll that really was much uh, more preferred by girls today, She also by parents. She represented suddenly um, the way that girls played and, and how uh, we saw our realities are multi-ethnic realities, and she was you know, sassier. So how was it that suddenly there was this new idea? Where did it come from? And I think it's really a fascinating inquiry always. You know, where do ideas come from? Is it a eureka moment? Uh, did, did an employee get his inspiration from within the workplace with, you know, interactions with colleagues, with coworkers, with supervisors, with everything that is sort of going on in the con you know, in the compound, in the confines of uh, Mattel, or rather as Carter Bryant and the competitor that developed this new doll, Bratz, uh, the, the MGA startup, were trying to show that it came from something completely external, and it came sort of from within, from within Carter Bryant, from a moment of inspiration when he was away from the company. And how to prove all of that is... Exactly as you say, it's really difficult, and it's uh, a matter of kind of piecing a lot of you know different clues in the puzzle of inspiration and kind of understanding the timeline and their different versions in the story. And and again, one of the fascinating things about this case that really led me to write the book is that you see this unfolding in two different trials with a different set of judges, different um, different juries, different attorneys, actually, different teams, because they've changed, they changed over the course of litigation, and how you tell the story and the kinds of evidence that you bring really makes a huge difference in the, that this is why it's a roller coaster case and, you know, different outcomes in, in the diff- two different trials. One of the things that it's rather amazing in thinking about this is that there are not more cases like this. I mean, we just witnessed what went on with Uber and Waymo, Mm -hmm. 
And and that was unusual in that it even happened. It's surprising there aren't more cases like this. Yeah, so here's what I've been arguing in general, and I think this is why uh, the Treasury Department and the White House policy team and, you know, the, the Department of Justice, the Labor Department, they've all been sort of interested in the effects of these clauses and, you know, basically your question of the what, what we're seeing in litigation and the major cases that we hear about and then what's happening below the surface. And I've been arguing, and I think we see this empirically, in the research that the the number of cases that uh, you know really get all the way to trial and get worked out in the courtroom setting and there's you know a defendant that's willing to really invest resources in 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 actually questioning the enforceability of some of these really draconian clauses that's really the tip of the iceberg in these in, in what's going on in the market. Uh, there's a huge chilling effect, and we see this again with Uber and Waymo. I, I've written about the case, and I've been interviewed now a bunch about um, that you know, that particular context of an employee moving from from Waymo to to Uber, and you know what did he take? And there were questions there um, during the trial that that you know just settled, and we won't see it really worked out, but. Um, about you know whether an employee needs to undergo a lobotomy when they move from one uh, competitor to another, and of course the answer is no. But that's you know the fact that it was raised is is really kind of the key here to understanding the effect. Um, there's a chilling effect, and I think that's the reason that we don't see um, so many cases there when when an employee is thinking about moving, is thinking about competing, uh, thinking about developing a new idea, there, there's such um, you know, uh, a big threat and a big risk these days of being sued that both, the, both employees, when they're thinking about moving, are um, oftentimes deciding to either take a detour in their professional careers and go you know, to something else, not go to a competitor or just staying where they're not the happiest, where their talents are not used in the best way. Uh, they forego a lot of ideas. And, and again, that's why we see, I, I describe in You Don't Own Me, kind of the, the market concentration that happens in a lot of these industries where there's really one or two huge players like Mattel and Hasbro, basically a duopoly in the toy industry for many decades. Um, you see this, you know, with, with Uber and Waymo, it's, I think it's representative of why we actually did see litigation because these are, these are two giants, you know, and they both have the staying power to, to work these things out. And eventually it settles um, still with further concentration because the settlement is that Waymo gets a, you know, a big equity share in, in Uber. Um, and, and, and with You Don't Own Me, with the story of Mattel fighting with MGA, Part of the, you know, when, when you go get into the book, you see that Mattel threatens litigation against so many different actors and constantly wants to sue really everybody that it can, but it doesn't go to trial because artists, musicians, you know, uh, filmmakers, when they get that cease and desist letter, 
the most common thing is to just say, okay, you know, the, mm-hmm. this this giant has threatened litigation, so I'm not going to pursue my, my creative activities. From a case law perspective, would we have been better off if the Uber-Wymo case had gone to conclusion? Yes, uh, I, I certainly think so, because... With trade secrecy, so this was about trade secrets. There were no claims, you know, like the conventional intellectual property pillars. And, and this is true also with You Don't Own Me with the Mattel MGA case. It's not about uh, who owns a, a certain patent, which is sort of easier to unpack of what are the lines of patentability, what has been granted a patent, and what and the rest is in the public domain. With trade secrecy, it's very difficult to know where do you draw the lines between what are general skills that employees can move uh, with, and, and it's always been the case that under the Uniform Trade Secret Act, also nowadays we recently have um, a federal law passed, the Defense Trade Secret Act, that for the first time creates a, a civil right of action uh, under federal law and trade secrets. But it's always been the case that we draw a line between general knowledge that is something that's fair game, that belongs to an employee, an employee can move with it, doesn't need to undergo a lobotomy, uh, can, you know, part, it becomes part of your career. You, you uh, talked about in the beginning of our conversation about how work has changed so much over um, the course of the you know the past century and and today that the expectations of how people manage their careers where they will end up and you know how they move about in the industry is is dramatically different than in the past people are really thinking about how they're increasing their human capital all the time when they take a position and they have no expectation and really no job security and no no promise on the side of the employer that they will stay for longer than a few years with with this single employer. So it's it's crucial that they can use their general knowledge in an industry and and that uh, and they can move to competitors now so that that new companies can actually recruit and retain those um, really knowledgeable and experienced employees. And paradoxically. Um, you know, if we don't draw those lines well between general knowledge and the what is really secret and what is really specialized that an employee learned at the company and and can't take with it with with her or him when they move, you know, from Waymo to Uber, from one toy in company to another toy company. If you can't draw those lines, then even the new businesses are deciding to forego opportunities, recruitment opportunities of the most talented people, the most experienced and the most creative, and to take somebody who's completely a blank slate because they don't want to risk litigation with their their competitors, the incumbents. Are those lines, though, are those hard lines becoming harder to find? I mean, there was a set of lines that you could argue that the lawyers did argue with respect to Mattel and MGA, but if you look at something like pharma today, let's say, it's harder to find those lines. They get blurrier all the time. A lot of times they're quite blurry, especially with definitions of trade secrecy that are problematic because uh, there are cases that say that even negative 
knowledge, negative know-how, we call it, and it's a controversial doctrine in trade secrecy, that knowing about what fails, what has failed in uh, one pharma company, um, like if you were in an R&D division, and you know that putting together several chemicals is, is just not going to be a good, you know, successful route, that too has been deemed by some courts as a secret, and if an employee, a scientist, uh, you know, moves from one biotech to another and is asked to do that, you know, failed process again, they can't really say, no, but I know that this won't work. <laughs> so you have to go down that path, you know, once again, that can be very costly. And, and, and again, they kind of have that silencing effect. So, one of the important things when we're trying to get those lines right is to remember that like every other part of intellectual property, intellectual property is not some natural you know, uh, rule that has been with us forever and it's uh, you know, something that we should associate with some you know, immediate justice kind of idea. It's more that intellectual property serves a public pur- purpose. Its purpose is to incentivize innovation, to create progress in arts and sciences. And we understand that it's always a balancing act between um, giving some guarantees for, for companies who are investing in, 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 in R&D and developing something new, that they will be able to recoup some of that investment, but also incentivizing competition and the next, you know, building up on those those ideas and that knowledge. So, uh, you know, for example, with Mattel, they, they've been so um, set on controlling the image of their iconic doll, Barbie, you know, who, who every girl recognizes, everybody in, in the United States and the world recognizes and has kind of some reaction to, and, and she's been part of our culture. Um, Mattel has this perception of intellectual property that you know we own this image, we own the ideas behind the image of um, you know what what can be said about her, how it can be presented, and so anybody who wants to remix some of those ideas and create something new, they you know we can stop them. But that's not what intellectual property is about. It's about create you know building on the shoulders of giants and and creating the next steps of our culture, of our science, of our uh, technology, innovation, you know, at large. Of course, the reality is, that, as, as you've been talking about, that all of this can have the chilling effect of stifling innovation. Right, right, exactly. So perversely, if we have two concentrated markets and we define patents, copyright, trade secrets, trademarks too broadly, you know, with each one of these pillars, um, you can unpack the, the lines that we, we're, we've been drawing and the kind of expansion of how um, these, these bodies of knowledge are protected. We can, you know, if we tip the balance, we're creating impediments to innovation, impediments to competition, and to, you know, building upon the building blocks of, of the knowledge that we have. One of the things that seems to have happened, and you talk about this in, in You Don't Own Me in, in terms of the, the scope of this case, is that the intellectual property law and the trade secrets law you were, you were talking about and employment law have all found this nexus where they come together and don't fit very neatly together. 
absolutely. So that's the other thing that um, has really drawn me to tell the story and to show this kind of an action, these developments in how we have very public debates about how to draw the lines in, in patent law, you know, what should be patentable and everything else, like something that's too abstract of an idea should not be patentable, should not be copyrightable. But under the radar, we're seeing these expansions of what companies define as their own, as their, their own ideas and, and their, you know, what, what they um, can protect as something much broader than what the law of intellectual property has actually deemed, uh, you know, protected. So we have employees signing very vast contracts. Um, as we said, most of them not really having the will and, you know, the strength to question. You know, first at, at the signing point, I, I get a lot of emails now that I've, you know, written two books about the topic um, from just college grads, you know, people in the industry who are getting offers and major Silicon Valley corporations and many different, you know, in the entertainment industry and the product industry and in any kind of uh, position where they're looking at their, their contracts um, that they're asked to sign. They don't feel that they have bargaining power to, to change those, those contracts. The language is very broad, um, very difficult to interpret. And, and then so at the time zero, when they're signing the contract, they're not negotiating it really, and it's sort of a one-sided um, provision. And then at the time when they want to leave, they're, they're reading it again, and they're getting advice of, you know, you, you can certainly win when, when you go all the way to court. And the MGA case, so the, when Mattel sues MGA and you don't own me, this entrepreneur that develops brats from the idea that Carter Bryant uh, came with, came up with, and came to them with. Um, it's really uh, not representative in the sense that the the CEO of MGA is such a colorful, <laughs> bold person. Uh, you know, he's the founder of this startup that goes against the giants, and he's he's sort of comfortable being in litigation with everybody and anybody. And, you know, you, I think it's a very entertaining um, kind of side of the of the book where you kind of see him going against, he's, he ends up, you know, he's litigating against his brother where he, um, he founded the company together with him. And there's questions about ownership of MGA. Um, and, you know, he buys out the shares with his brother. So, it's, you know, litigation or, you know, he's, he's in conflict with people from his own family, and then he goes against giants like not only Mattel, but um, I think uh, Pixar, uh, Lucasfilms, and he's like uh, a licensee of, of some of um, that those products, and he, he's just uh, willing to be in litigation, and he says, says about himself that he's sort of, you have to be a little, you know, nuts or, you know, just like... Um, really kind of crazy to to go all the way for years and years of uh, a lot of a lot of spending in in the both the emotional and but also the you know real resources that go into litigation and here the money is astounding the 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 sheer numbers of what the attorneys are paid this is in the hundreds of millions of dollars that just the attorneys get from 
this one single litigation. Right. And, and, and Isaac Larian actually ends up being in litigation with some of his attorneys because he can't pay them, actually, for representing him. I mean, I, w- I want to emphasize that, that it was literally hundreds of millions of dollars that were spent in aggregate on these cases. Right. Just in the, the attorney's fees and court costs. I want to come back to to what the conclusions of this were in that they were, as you talk about in You Don't Own Me, two entirely separate trials, both with different conclusions. And it really speaks to the the confusion over these issues in many ways that that we've been talking about. Right. Um, So so several things uh, are interesting when you read through kind of how the dynamic shifted in the two different trials. So at first, there's, you know, Mattel, um, and there's a really interesting story there about how it even finds out that Carter Bryant is behind this new doll that really blindsided, you know, the whole corporation and suddenly, you know, knocks Barbie off her pedestal, as Judge Kaczynski describes when he, he gets the case on appeal. Um, so they, they find out with an anonymous letter, um, it's, from from Hong Kong that really their former employee had uh, come up with this idea and sold it to a competitor. And this is already after the doll was developed. You know, the entire Bratz empire is out there. Isaac Larian and MGA have invested millions in in marketing and development and, and production. And so they decide, and again, this is, a I think, a key moment, in the book where they, the executives at Mattel decide to invest so much money in litigation um, and it really diverts a lot of, I think, their attention to actually innovate and innovating in the industry and, and doing better than the competitor, which is what you know, we want to, to have happen. But um, in the trials, you see how, how much the story of, you know, how you tell the story of what really happens and the story of the corporate cultures makes a huge difference in the minds of the judges and the juries. Um, so in, in the first trial, it's really all about, you know, they took something from us. They, the employee worked for us. They, he, you know, even, even during his off time, he really owes everything to us. And um, the judge sort of instructs the, the jury to find um, that, that that's the reality that employees owe, you know, the contract is a contract is a contract. And, and this is um, what it said. In the second trial, there's a lot of juicy facts that weren't presented to the jury and in, in the first trial that come out. And I think it really makes a huge difference. So really um, one of the genius of uh, the attorney that comes on, and she's also a hero in the story, Jennifer Keller, she kind of joins in late, and she understands that we really need to present Carter Bryant and how he was treated by Mattel in a more, um, full, you know, in a fuller way. Uh, she um, shows, you know, how, how much, how many ideas were not developed by Mattel that were presented by employees, and that's very typical. You know, they, they it actually comes out that they would never developed his idea. You know, they just didn't want to cannibalize, and they actually use Mattel uses that term. They don't want to cannibalize their own product. So if the if you're a monopoly basically in in an industry, you have no incentive to create something new. 
So that's one thing. And then a lot of other juicy details and, and really problematic, very, very, um, you know, um, questionable behaviors about Mattel as a company come out in the, in the second trial because there are counterclaims that are added uh, about um, a whole arm that in, at Mattel that engages in economic espionage and, uh, you know, spies in the toy fair that come in, uh, that they're Mattel employees and are, you know, really instructed to go and, and basically steal um, the plans of their competitors. Um, there are also issues about, just ethical issues about um, how Mattel contracted with the retailers and, you know, possible antitrust questions, you know, about um, you know, possible price fixing and ethical questions about production in China and, and whether some of the toys that were hazardous and toxic, whether there was recalls on time um, to save, you know, save children from really being exposed. So a lot of things, it's just that I think, you know, again, what drew me to tell this story was that the case that was unfolding over um, 10 years with really colorful characters, it was sort of a microcosm of so many of the, you know, social, cultural, legal issues that we see kind of in, a, in one, you know, in one small kind of lens on, on a single story. It really unpacks so much of that. Orly Lobel. Her book is You Don't Own Me, How Mattel and MGA Entertainment Exposed Barbie's Dark Side. Orly, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.